Okay, I'm here with Jake Rosenzweig. We're walking up the Verdugo Mountains on a beautiful sunny day, and we're talking politics and music, and uh, the question arose, you know, what is the most effective way to make a political statement musically, right? Yeah. Uh... Overt or subtle, um, or or just cultural. Okay. Like the things, the activities and behaviors, practice uh, that you value as a as a group. You know, uh-huh. like I think a lot of groups would identify as being leftist or maybe even apolitical, but the way that they actually operate does have political implications. You know, like a lot of bands tour constantly and they get a big van that takes a ton of gas. So whether they, even if they support really radical politics, what they're doing is giving a ton of money to the gas and oil companies. Right, so the and they're actions... like working as hard as they can to make money mostly for gas. So they're like working for the people that they're against ostensibly. Hmm. So, my thing is that, with this group, is we, we need to make sure that we can tour in an ecologically sustainable way. A lot of people have already, like, bought or created veggie, veggie oil-powered vehicles that they tour in. Right. Um, so my goal over, I don't know, the next year or six months is to either get or convert a car into a veggie power vehicle or figure out how I could tour by bicycle or by a Prius <laughs> which is yeah. not as effective as the other ones but it's still better it's still yeah yeah so the, then the other thing is like that limits the kind of space that you have yeah. in your vehicle so this band would have a really small setup that we could cram into a Prius or like a station wagon or something like that. How many people would be in this band? There's three. Okay, so that's doable. It's For... doable. And then that means like playing on smaller amps and a smaller drum set, which in my mind kind of tackles or, well not tackles, but questions what I perceive as kind of like this gear fetishism, gear oh. fetishism in rock and roll. Oh. With like giant amps and like super fancy guitars and tons of pedals. Right. And I see that as, like, being linked to just, like, performing masculinity. Oh, wow. Just, like, being all big and muscular and powerful and overwhelming and dominating. So it might be nice to have a band that is made of white guys, cisgender white guys, that aren't trying to, like, force their shit down your throat. Oh, wait, force the shit down your throat, like... In terms of volume. Oh, okay. You know, volume and bombast. Right. So that's interesting. So, so, the idea of kind of living out what your ideal is on tour, basically. Yeah. Not just in the music, but just your... The way you actually operate as a group. Yeah. A lot of groups are already not really capitalist at least in the DIY circuit, because 
they're really just trying to make enough money to feed themselves or shelter themselves, you know, or be comfortable. I, I guess that's different than overtly capitalist ethic, which is just making as much money as possible all the time, no matter what, and holding it privately, not distributing it um, evenly amongst all the people involved right. in the enterprise. Yeah, so, yeah, right. Even even going down to, like, how you distribute the money in yeah. the band. And the hierarchy of the band, like, ostensibly, I mean, there's a person who started it, but ideally it would be egalitarian. Right. We would do everything by consensus. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. And, okay, so, moving to the actual content of the music, mm-hmm. um... Is a question of should we do it like Rage Against the Machine style, <laughs> you know, do uh, overt, or what, what's another example of a more subtle political statement that is open to interpretation? <clears throat> well, I mean, think of something like the Talking Heads in the late '70s. They started out by saying that like, we're not going to use any blues riffs because they knew they knew that a lot of the, the language of rock and roll was seen as being appropriated from the blues, which involved a lot of black performers being exploited. So they made the deliberate decision not to have any uh, overtly blues influence. Okay. At least in the early early days. But then it kind of like. They definitely adopted, like, funk and gospel, so... I don't know. Right. That's a complicated question that I don't know enough about the talking heads to answer. Okay, so that's... That, that's, that's a, I mean, that's, like, an example. It's just, like... Yeah. Picking what your sound is based on what you perceive to be the political implications of that. You know, or, like... The Minutemen... Um... They, they were also being, like, anti-big rock show when they chose that name, because it means, like, minute men. Oh. Like, little. Okay. As opposed to big. Oh, loud. wow. And their music was often explicitly political, but sometimes I don't know if it's, like, as good as their lyrics that are, like, more cryptic or metaphorical. Right, because you know? it, it kind of lacked an artistry. Yeah. There, there, there was something like... No, it doesn't lack in creativity or artistry, in my opinion, but it it feels a little didactic. You okay. know, like, basically the the takeaway from a given song might be like, fascism is bad. And it's like, yeah, I mean, I agree. <laughs> fascism is bad. World War Three would be bad. Right. You know, it's like, I feel like everyone already kind of knows that stuff. Right. And there are very few people who would disagree or take offense that kind of statement so I feel like the weird thing in being political overtly political is that you're saying stuff that everyone would already agree with who comes to the show and people who disagree might just double down on what they say oh interesting so it's kind of like our conversation about like with with Trump like defaming Trump is like creating (laughs) resistance which is Empowering the Trump supporters. I mean, maybe. 
at a certain point, you kind of wonder, like, if they're going to realize that he really just sucks, and that's all there is to it. But right. that, I don't think that hap- has happened yet. Yeah. And then, you know, then there are people like Woody Guthrie who are really rousing and exciting, and they, they make you feel like you've been convinced of something, or like reaffirmed about something. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's pretty overt. Yeah, he's very overt. So, I don't know, it could go either way. It might just be like a question of individual context. Yeah. You know? Right. But I also feel like... <clears throat> the only way to get out there and, like, really be known for what you're doing anymore is it's really hard to achieve fame or notoriety on a wide scale without playing into the hands of large corporations. You right. Know? Like, if you want your stuff to be on the mainstream radio, you have to make a lot of sacrifices to make it palatable enough that the corporations behind it won't think they'll lose money on you. And also, a lot of bands use social media, which is a really good way of telling people about what you're up to, but it just keeps people kind of addicted to these platforms that are owned by private corporations that then sell your information to advertisers who learn all sorts of stuff about you and just like hawk you useless shit that you don't need. And then, you know, it's also you're giving away your privacy from the NSA and people like that. Yeah. And furthermore, a lot of computers and cell phones and everything use stuff that was assembled by people who are basically slaves. Like hyper-exploited people in China often. Yep. And that's not my, that's not my observation, that's Jarrett Kobeck's, who wrote I Hate the Internet. Oh, he hates the internet? He hates the internet. Oh, wow. It's a good book. I had recommend it. Okay, so he's just arguing against uh, all the negative yeah. influences the internet has had. Yeah. So, I don't know, I just feel like you have to play ball in this really unpalatable way to get your message out there. And maybe, you know, if the situation is really dire, you don't really have a choice. And that's just, like, the risk you have to run. You know? Yeah. So, you know, like, Black Lives Matter and stuff, it revolves so much around the ability to share stuff really quickly on Twitter and Facebook and stuff like that. Um... And I wouldn't say, like, they should stop using it just so they don't make Mark Zuckerberg or whatever any more money. Right. So, sometimes I guess you just have to, it's like, feels like one of those two steps forward, one step back. Oh, the the Lenin quote. Yeah. Interesting. So Uh. then I feel like I'm maybe in, like, a very lucky or privileged position where I could even choose to have my stuff not be on social media, you know, to try and go out there without it, Mm -hmm. and just have, like, a smaller influence. 
So is that what you're going to do with the band? You're not going to be on social media? I don't know. Yep. I don't know. Um, I think it would have to depend on whether I felt like what we were putting out there would be strong enough politically that it might have some sort of influence um, just hearing it online or just through Facebook or something. But if it was like a thing where it was disguised enough or just not political in an obvious way that people could just be like, oh, a band. Yeah. Then, no, it's not worth it. You just don't need any more bands. Well, on I, Twitter or whatever. Here's what I'm thinking. I'm thinking, because we, we talked about Woody Guthrie and the song Roll On, Columbia, Roll On. Mm-hmm. He wrote that, and uh, he wrote that in, you know, 1940. Mm-hmm. But it didn't get commercially released until like seven or eight years later. But in the course of that seven years, that song got popular via grassroots, you know, oral tradition. Well, you said sheet music sales. Okay, sheet music sales, uh, like in kids' song, kids songbooks. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in non-standard ways of distributing music Yeah. at the time. Was so, it? What, I mean... I don't know the trajectory of the... Hi, good morning. The Hello. Decline. Hi. Hi. Bye. The trajectory of the decline of the sheet music industry. You know? That's a good question. I th- I'm not sure. I don't know. But I feel like phonographs and radio were not still like... Still not quite... Not really there. widely owned things in the 1940s. Maybe, I guess by the war... Seems like people have radios in the war, but right. I really don't know. That's a good question because they might have already been using an existing industry, which was still probably owned and operated by capitalists. Mm, <laughs> you know, and, like was possible because of the industrial revolution and stuff like that. Right. Interesting. Yeah, I guess. So the question is: is it, is it possible to find like alternative? Means of means of distributing your music that is in line with your philosophy, political ideals. Basically, Uh, I don't know. It might not be. Might not be. Might just like have to have the courage to be like really underground. Wow. And but but here's the and not seek out you know widespread. <laughs> but I mean, I've already got that covered. My whole career is like devoted to really obscure music, right? That I have not really shared much of on Facebook, which is the only social media thing I use. Mm-hmm. Not very often. Not very often, right? Every time I go on Twitter, it's like, I, I mean, I, I, at work, there's like, you know, the bookstore store stuff on Twitter, and you can, if you click on the little open bookmark, it takes you to the Twitter's main page, Okay. where they just have the articles that are trending the most, and yeah. it's just always useless, 
It's like, like the most useless stuff, like what Kim Kardashian right. did today or whatever. It's like, and it, people care so much about that stuff. And it really doesn't matter. Really, really doesn't matter. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> well, that's, yeah, we are talking about, like, media kind of being, or revolving around uh, advertising mm-hmm. money, you know? It does. And that's why Kim Kardashian gets so much coverage, because people know, or the news sources know that people will click on that. Yeah. So. Well, I mean, why will, why do people care about Kim Kardashian anyway? Because, like, in our culture, which is, you know, perpetuated by the mass media, so against conspiracy theorists now, but I think it's basically true. You know, there's, like, an ideal of feminine beauty mm-hmm. that she's supposed to encapsulate. So... All this media is focused on making women feel insecure about their bodies. <laughs> and so, you know, they have like... I feel like a lot of women, you know, care about dieting and all that stuff because they feel insecure about the way they look. And it's like a whole industry based on making people feel insecure. I mean, that's all advertising is. Mm-hmm. That's the same for men, too. It's like, basically... What it is, is they have everyone worried about how much sex they are or aren't having, having, and if you aren't having what's perceived as, like, the normal amount, mm-hmm. which is, I guess, a lot, <laughs> then there yeah. must be, like, something wrong with you, and that can be corrected by buying some stupid product. Oh, wow. Or losing weight or bulking up or, you know, something like that. Yeah. I mean, people have been saying that for a long time. For sure. So I think that's why this stuff is popular. is popular is because it's like this fake fantasy that people feel is, like, within their grasp. If they just, like, have the right lifestyle and they buy the right products. Right. And, you know, it's just all based on making sure that no one feels good about themselves. You're always, yeah. like, comparing yourself to the life of a person that may or may not really be real. Or if it is real, it's just, like, very few people ever live like that. You know? Yeah. You just have to, like, I don't know, just make people feel good about who they are, as they are. Yeah. And and just tying it back to the internet, why I don't like the internet, is that the book? It's called I Hate the Internet. I Hate the Internet. Internet runs... The economy of the Internet runs on advertising, right? Well, social media does. Google? Google does, yeah. Spotify? You know, there was a very interesting Roger Waters interview where he talks about Spotify um, being a relationship between the, the... between Spotify... And the advertisers, mm-hmm. instead of musicians and their fans. Yeah, I mean, musicians are just being really exploited. You know, you get like a fraction of a cent or something per play. 
for like all the work that goes into every single track on an album. I mean, yeah. that's ridiculous. Too. It's just like paying for exposure on a mass scale. Right. And I think it works for a few people, but I mean, you have to like be so popular already to just make any money on Spotify. And there's no reason it has to be that way. They could easily... I mean, I don't know what their finances are, but I'm sure that they could redistribute it in a way that would be more fair. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, is that the only... Is that the main thing, the problem you see with Spotify? Is that... Is just the redistribution is not fair? Or... Yeah, like, what? what is your ideal vision for how music is distributed, you know what I mean? I mean, I, I guess whatever method is used is fine as long as people aren't being exploited. Right. You're not, like, pay, playing for exposure, playing for free, and somebody else is making a ton of money. Right. You wouldn't want it to just be possible for musicians to be valued. Yeah. For what they do. You know, because music isn't seen as labor. Even though it is, it takes a lot of work. You know, there's like all these depictions of musicians who are, like everyone's a natural, no one ever has to practice. Uh (laughs) You know what I mean? Yeah. Bands just come together magically. Mm -hmm. Um, And then like the lifestyle of like, the impoverished indie rocker is really glamorized. Okay. But it's not that glamorous. It's not that glamorous. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, I think the ideal would just be that you could, mm-hmm, I don't know, just be valued for what you do. Like you would be paid as much or more than the people who own Spotify for play. For play. Yeah. I mean, I guess that would be Spotify. One thing weird about Spotify and Google Play and stuff like that is now, like, every single album ever made is available. Mm-hmm. And I think that also makes people take music for granted. Because oh, they can just, yeah. like, click on it and be like, ah, I don't like it. Right. But when I was a littler, and I think people who grew up in a different time than us, like, you would hear about an album or recommend it or buy it, and it would be a risk, and you would just, like, you would have, you would just have to pay attention to it because you spent your money on it, you know? Yeah. So I think that encouraged, or maybe I think it encouraged a little bit more active listening. Yeah. You know? Yeah, for sure. Or like, instead of just using algorithms to recommend you music, you would have to go and socialize with people. Uh-huh. I mean, people still do that. But you would actually have to, like, go to the record store and talk with the clerk or talk with your friends or go to shows and stuff like that. People still do that, but not, not in the same way, I guess. Right. But that's, that's already an old conversation. That's been... What people have been talking about for like seven years or something at this point or more. Yeah, I but guess since Napster, really. Since Napster, how? So probably like the last 16, 17 years. Yeah. 
Oh, yeah, I, know, I, I found that. Yeah, go ahead. Just the relationship of how you listen to music now. You know, when you had a cassette or a CD, uh, you would tend to listen to the music a lot more and get to know it a little deeper because it was just around. It was there. Yeah. So you listen to it over and over again. I remember when I was like just starting to acquire CDs where I didn't have very money and I would just have to pick the one that was closest to how I was feeling or how I wanted to feel at the time. Oh, okay. You know? Yeah. Because there wasn't, you can go online and be like, chill playlist. <laughs> yeah. Workout playlist. Right. You know? Right. I mean, when I was like 13, I had the choice between like Weird Al Yankovic, Rage Against the Machine, <laughs> and Miles Davis. <laughs> I remember those were like my first three CDs. <laughs> really? That's a nice spectrum. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I don't feel like I've ever really graduated from that triumvirate. Really? So all, all your... I feel like, yeah, I feel like a lot of my... Can be traced back to those three? I feel like a lot of my aesthetic preferences come from those places. Amazing. Oh, that's very interesting. So how old were you when, when you had those? 13. Wow. 12, 13. Okay, so, alright. That leads me to my next question about your influences. Okay? Okay. So, do you consider your musical evolution to be, like, pretty constant in terms of your musical interests, or have you gone through a lot of transformations, and, uh, yeah. I, I guess, I feel like maybe there are kind of peaks and valleys, or plateaus, okay. where I discover something, I get really excited about it, and I get really into it, um, and it informs a lot of what I do, and then, and then, uh, I get, like, used to those things. Um, or I incorporate them into what I want to do, and then I don't discover anything new for a while, and then I find something new, or think of something new, and then it excites me again. Okay. But I also feel like my preferences have gone through, even though I just said in some ways I'm like, still like what I liked when I was 13, I also feel like I've evolved a lot. And not in, only in terms of what you listen to, but also your... What I actually, the kind of music I want to make. Yeah, or in, in terms of like philosophical, too, because I remember you telling me a little bit that your musical uh, interest in what you want to make was affected by the article you read? Well, right? yeah, recently, I mean, I read this essay called Against Ambience by Seth Kim Cohen, and I thought he made some really good points about um, uh, apolitical ambient music, um, which kind of influenced my idea that it's, you know, the, the music, the more than the music itself, like, what you actually do as an artist and how you get your music in front of people that has political implications. And um, I didn't agree with everything he said, but it definitely um, 
made me think and reconsider some stuff and made me see some music in a different light, which I appreciate. So, but, as I remember, the article talks about apolitical ambient music. Uh, that's my turn, not his. Oh, that's his. Okay. Oh, that's your turn. Um, but basically he was talking about music that had a kind of pleasing tone that kind of was an outgrowth of, like, what's pleasing culturally. Yeah, like, um, not just ambient music, but also ambient art he was talking about, like James Terrell and Robert Irwin. Okay. Um, let's see, I mean, I don't want to, like, represent his argument because I don't feel like I could do it as well as him. Mm-hmm. Um, but basically what he's saying is that music that is um, meant to make us feel a certain, like, hypnosis or um, floatiness, you know, because it sounds pretty and light and stuff like that. Those are sort of, those come out of our culture, you know, that has deeper roots than just a born, a born uh, set of aesthetics. Yeah. Um, and he's saying that we need to question our culture because our culture is tied to our politics, and American politics are really destructive. Interesting. Okay, I didn't think about that side of the argument. Okay. You know, like... The idea of having an immersive, ever-present, transparent uh, thing that is placating, I mean, that's not that much... I mean, you could, you could almost say, this, use that, those, those words to describe social media, or TV news, or the NSA, or even just the idea of government in general. It's like always there, even when you can't see it. Oh my god, Bob. So you think that's... Uh... Wow. So ambient music, whether it's intentional or not, may be reflecting the status quo of pol- political, social... I mean, that would be his his argument. Yeah. Um, what I'm curious to know is, I bet you could make ambient music that was political. Um, <clears throat> mm-hmm. uh, and then also, I think he kind of feels that maybe all music has an obligation to be political for that reason, um, or all art does, but then that's kind of constricting on art. Okay. You know. Oh, all art has an obligation to be political. Yeah. Because... Or at least questioning, questioning culture. Right. Um, but then I don't know. Because you might end up with the same thing, where, like, the people who appreciate what you're doing are the ones who show up to consume your art, whatever it is. Um, and the people who aren't interested don't pay any attention, or the people who just don't run in the same socioeconomic circles as you don't pay attention. So it's hard to know what wide-ranging influence it could have. Interesting. I mean, I guess you just have to work with small, small cultural influence. So, that's something to think about. So in your music, how, so how do you think about your music differently, or like, how does that change your goal and what you're, in what you compose? 
Um, I guess I feel like I want to take on the challenge of questioning my tacit aesthetic mm. feelings. Mm-hmm. Um, I just want to know, think about where it's coming from and what I could possibly be implicitly endorsing in the way that I make music. You know, I feel like playing free improvisation or free jazz or noise, um, a lot of people feel like that music is um, countercultural in some ways because it's not as extremely difficult to commodify and extremely difficult to make popular. Right. Um, and it doesn't involve uh, repetition or um, obvious interpretation. So it really makes the person more imaginative, I feel, when you listen to that music. Or you're just more appreciative mm -hmm. of possibilities of sound. And it's not, for anyone involved, it's like not about the money, really. So those are sometimes seen as positive things. But then also, you know, you wonder if it is because free improvisation is all is so like individualistic and maverick, and uh -huh. that's you know part of mainstream American culture too. And oh wow! Yep. When these people tour, they drive or fly, which is just as destructive as a CEO driving or flying. Yep. Can we pause to appreciate the view? Yeah. For a second. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Oh wow, that's beautiful. Seems like this trail started out with a bunch of people, but then now there's nowhere around here. Yeah, it's nice. It's pretty cool. Pretty sweet trail. I like it. Okay. Yeah. I think it's La Cañada. Okay. Okay, so after enjoying a beautiful view of La Cañada, <laughs> we're out with Jake Rosenzweig continuing our conversation. Has music always been fun for you? Um, I think music has always arranged a wide, wide spectrum. Mm -hmm. From being, I mean, obviously I like it because I haven't quit. <laughs> but um, uh, it goes like all the way from feeling like transcendent and wonderful to just being a grind. You know, mm -hmm. the whole spectrum. Yeah. When does it feel like a grind? Um, it's felt that way when I've played gigs that were just money gigs. Hmm. Like, I'm only doing this because I want the money or I need the money. Um, and playing music I really don't like. 
Get situations that I don't not really that crazy about. Yeah. Um, or sometimes like playing with somebody that you don't get along with super well. You know. Oh yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, you know, sometimes like just practicing and stuff. You know, like just learning the basics of upright or something. That can just take a lot of this beautiful maintenance. Mm-hmm. And that's uh, that's still kind of enjoyable, actually. I wouldn't say that's a point. Okay, so you... S- okay, you still like that. So really the grind is, is related to money and undesirable gigs. Yeah. So, that's cool. And then the transcendent? Well... I mean, it doesn't get there that often, which is maybe a good thing, because it was like that all the time, maybe I would take it for granted. But, you know, most of the time it's, most of the time it's fun. Yeah. Most of the time it's fun, and if it's not fun, it's really interesting and engaging and challenging, and um, there's kind of an infinite universe, you know, could never exhaust the musical possibilities out there. You could never listen to all the music that's out there. So that's kind of cool. Yeah. Um, and maybe never find an end to ways of thinking about music or t- approaches you could take. Yeah. I think for me, m- music is like, well, at least initially and maybe s- still... Like a social thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like, I... Wait. Like when a I was going to start playing music for real when I was 13 or something, um, my friends and I wanted to start a band. And mm-hmm. we didn't know what a bass was, but we thought you had to have a bass to have a band. So okay. So decided that I would play bass. Wow. Yeah. So it was kind of like a little bit arbitrary that you chose bass? Yeah. Oh, cool. But then you, you discovered that, yo, you, you said, wow, I really, I really do like this. Well, yeah. I mean, I just kept at it. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I guess it got to the point where I was like, I wasn't really worried about whether it was my choice or not. It was just like an instrument that I was down to be involved with. Mm-hmm. Um, and I concentrated on it really hard for a long time. Um, Did you start with electric or upright? Electric. Okay. I started on guitar. My oh, parents yes. didn't want to buy a bass. So oh, okay. I, I had to take guitar lessons, classical guitar lessons for a while before and like prove to them that I was just interested in being a musician. Mm-hmm. And then they um, indulged me and bought a bass guitar. Cool. Um, and now I just want to get better at guitar again. <laughs> it's gone so full been, circle. I've been playing more guitar recently. Really? And when did you get into upright bass? Um, I think when I was like 14 or 15, I was getting interested in jazz. Mm-hmm. And um, it was emphasized to me that like upright is the jazz bass instrument. Oh, okay. And I was like, okay. Let's take on that challenge. Yeah. 
cool. And, okay, so going further back into your uh, childhood, and it doesn't necessarily have to be musical, but what were your interests as a child? Um, when I was little, I was really into dinosaurs. I still like dinosaurs. I think it's fun to go to the Natural History Museum. Um, yeah. I went through a big dinosaur phase. And I went through a big monster phase. I drew, like, tons of pictures of monsters eating people and giant squids attacking ships and dragons and stuff like that. And Godzilla. I was really into Godzilla. Mm. And then I was into knights in the medieval era. I drew a lot of castles and battle scenes. So cool. Um, and, yeah, I was into that that kind of stuff as a child and and you're um, still kind of into that stuff I still do like that stuff to a certain degree yeah and I played a lot of sports when I was younger mm -hmm. and um like baseball yeah I played baseball and football and basketball and soccer okay. and um I liked there was a phase I went through where I really, like, wanted to... I was really into doing imitations mm -hmm. and, like, comedy. For, like, a little while, I was interested in stand-up comedy and improv comedy and stuff like that. Mm. Um, let's see. I like reading. I read a lot. Oh, cool. Um, that I... Oh. Yeah. So that leads me to my next question. What, maybe name one or two books that influenced you most in your life or that you really kind of resonate with? Um, maybe just one or two. Or, no, you can name multiple. Well, I don't know. To be honest, like, some of them I'm embarrassed to name. Really? Yeah. Okay, well, you don't have to name they, them. they connect to, like, I don't know, just, like, private stuff. Yeah. Private feelings. Yeah, oh, yeah. That yeah. I maybe be interested in sharing that on, off the record. Off, off the, the record. record. Yeah. Yeah. Um. No problem. But, um... One book that um, is um, okay. Well, I, I mean, I can just talk about books I'm reading recently. Perfect. That I feel like are having an, an influence on me. And um, okay. Well, we already talked about I hate the internet. Another book that um, I've been into lately is uh, The Happiness Industry oh. by William Davies, um, which is talking about we're like in this moment of emphasizing personal happiness, like that's a supreme goal. Yeah. 
and how to maximize happiness in your life mm-hmm. um, through a combination of usually like positive psychology um, stuff like kind of appropriated from Buddhism or mindfulness um, what foods you eat like what time of day you work out stuff like that yeah and he's very interested in how this uh, current cultural conception of what happiness is and how it's attained and even more importantly for him how we came to believe that you can objectively measure happiness um, mm. those are the books that, that's the questions that the book is trying to answer and he goes back over the last like 150 years of um, philosophy and government policy the advertising industry and um, and psychology uh, to figure out like how we came to this point where you feel like you can we can objectively measure happiness by measure something measuring somebody's um, brain. You know, he talks about a monk monk who is uh, supposed to be the happiest person in the world according to like an fMRI scan. Like, and so how do we get to this point? Okay. Where you can, without really talking to the person, measure their brain waves and, and tell us they're happy or not. But also, more importantly for me, is talking about how our notion of a happy person in this day and age, okay, this is like someone who is one totally successful at their job, and successful means that you're making money. Um, uh, Another aspect is that they're like a real go-getter and they're like busy and productive and involved with everything all the time, relentlessly optimistic, um, always kind of expanding or like doing new things, trying new things, um, living comfortably, you know, like having a nice place to be, um, and often it's tied to material objects, like having a certain kind of lifestyle that can be purchased um and basically what he's saying is this all these ideals are all coming from kind of a capitalist standpoint you know those are the values and the attitudes that work best in the economic situation we're in where everyone is kind of forced to be a self-interested individual because there's no social safety net um and the individual is prized so highly individual achievement is such a big deal um, and kind of de-emph- de-emphasize the role that collective work uh, or collective activity plays in the shaping of our lives. Um, and it's also a very competitive society because, because everything is artificially scarce, you know, because it's owned by private interests and you have to get enough money to buy it. Um, you know, everyone's really competitive for the same stuff that we all need. And furthermore, you know, hoarding it all for yourself is, is valued in capitalism. You know, you're supposed to acquire as much as you can for yourself. Um, uh, and that kind of comes out of Protestant uh, beliefs, the Protestant work ethic. I guess, I guess a Calvinist philosophy of where the people who are chosen by God are pre-chosen, and you can't actually choose if God is going to take you to heaven or not. And the way that God shows who is chosen is by bestowing material goods. Um, 
and success in life on the people that he's chosen and the people who aren't, are not chosen, who are not, you know, wealthy or whatever, are not chosen. Um, that's, that's a little bit outside of what the book is talking about, but it, roll, it applies. Um, so, but what's important, what was a big deal for me was he's talking about how we have what he calls a competitive depressive society. Where because we're all in competition for the same stuff and for the same feelings, um, only a very few people actually achieve that. Mm -hmm. We were talking about earlier. And so most people always feel like they're missing out on something or they failed in some way or they're just like not good enough. Um, And so depression, as we experience it, is a direct outgrowth of... Uh, the economic or political situation. And it's furthered by the psychological establishment um, that, you know, first named and defined the depression and then the pharmaceutical industry, which makes a lot of money off of selling medications that are, treat depressive illnesses. Mm. And I'm not saying that those things are bad or they shouldn't be there, but... Um, people get depressed because they feel hopeless or frustrated about their situation and they, they feel helpless to change anything. Um, and, and all of the self-help books and positive psychology is trying to convince you how you, as an individual, can change yourself to maximize uh, your potential and achieve your happiness, you know, within the realm of a capitalist society. Wow. Yeah. You know what I mean? They don't. They, none of those books ever say, like, you might be feeling upset because you're working as hard as you can and making no money. Right. You know, it's more like, you can find a new job. And it's like, you don't... Or, yeah, you yeah. shouldn't have to, like, worry about how, you, you know, your wage should be enough to take care of you. <laughs> it's as simple as that. Right, you know. Yeah, definitely. I, I, I have, I had that same feeling like, where people talk a lot about gratitude, like, oh, you should be just grateful and mm-hmm. um, appreciate what you have. But then sometimes you, you don't feel grateful. Mm. You don't feel grateful because you're going through some shit. Right. And you're in a situation that you're really unhappy with. Mm-hmm. So. How is it helpful for someone to tell you to feel grateful? You know, I mean, or I think is there's it more... all kinds of neuroscience about it. And I have, I mean, I've been worrying about the same thing or thinking about it. And um, that book talks about that same thing where you're, people are pressured to be grateful for situations that um, are actually not that great and could easily be corrected by some political changes. Mm-hmm. Um, that being said, um, one thing I've been doing over the last like year or a half, year and a half, or two years, maybe at this point, is writing down three things that I'm grateful for every day, okay. which was recommended to me by a, a person, mm-hmm. um, and I think it actually did make me feel better in a lot of ways. Okay. Um, but only because I can kind of counter that stuff with a kind of a broader understanding of my situation politically. 
Right. I feel like I can be grateful for stuff, and then I can also think about how things could be better. Um, and the, but the big difference for me is I don't um, blame myself as much, or in quite the same way. You know. For the, how things could be better. Yeah. Right. You know. Um, or at least, if even if in situations where I am to blame for whatever choice I made or decisions, I can take that responsibility and um, and not allow the fact that I made a mistake or I have a regret to be something that like is painful. You know, I feel mm. like I've learned how to accept the fact that I am imperfect and make mistakes. You know? Yeah. <clears throat> and then at the same time, I also feel like I've uh, come to appreciate radical or more radical politics and what they have to say. <laughs> um, does, that, does that make any sense? Yeah, very interesting. I mean, yeah. That, again, it's like, goes back to just questioning where all this stuff comes from, you know, what's the root of it? Mm-hmm. What's the root of people being interested in mindfulness and positive psychology? Um, I just went through, a tr- like, a teacher training for high school, teaching high school, and we spent, like, two hours on positive psychology. Mm. How we're supposed to redirect negative energy into positive psycho- you know, positive. Yeah. And uh, I was thinking in my mind all, all these things, like, you know, like, wh- what if you need to address something that's, if you have to just accept something and empathize instead of redirect it positively, right. you know? So yeah. I have that same, you know, wondering, like, yeah. if, 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 if a lot of the way people are, are working with positive psychology is it just, like, glossing over Mm-hmm. The negative, and also um, the other thing I wonder about is when people set intentions. Like that's an intention setting, or you have goal setting. Mm-hmm. Like when it comes to mindfulness and meditation. So let me get on my shoe. Um, that often, like I guess, people who. Yeah, like, this feeling like, oh, you can just do anything, you know? Like, is that oh, like, like when a you're print? meditating, you think, today I will catch you... five bullfrogs or something. Yeah, okay. or today, or, or you know, you, you visualize a goal, mm-hmm. no matter how, uh, you know, fantastical, and you go for it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'm just thinking, like... That's kind of a slightly privileged thing. Because Do you think so? Possibly, because some people don't have the means to achieve oh, anything. Sure. Yeah. You know? But people who set intentions like that, mm-hmm. maybe that's... Yeah, you kind of... Like, and well, I, I'm your just... goal could be anything. Yeah. You know what I mean? Your goal could be to uh, topple the state. Top of the state. Yeah, that's true. Or to achieve liberation for, for, for everybody. Right. We're gonna do. We're gonna accomplish this goal, which I think will push us further towards 
liberation. Yeah. Right. So it's 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 really about the individual, but we're talking about things getting co-opted by mainstream society, mm-hmm. mindfulness and meditation. Um, we talked about how like that can be directed to you know helping you become a more effective CEO. Yeah. And so, and so yeah. What do you think about that? Well, I mean, that's why I wanted to read this book, The Happiness Industry, because I saw that happening, and I thought it was weird. Like, Google has a guru that teaches all the uh, Google employees how to meditate, and the thing is, is um, it's covered. In, that's actually exactly what he talks about in the book, is that um, the biggest worry that a lot of companies and corporations have now is worker malaise, like people just not giving a shit about their job and becoming unproductive. Mm. And then that loses them a ton of money because their employees aren't working at the max capacity at all the time. And they have been figuring out that happy employees are more productive employees. So they're interested in implementing mindfulness uh, and positive psychology in the workplace because it makes people feel more happy and they become better workers and the company makes more money and they can go on you know, exploiting people. <laughs> for their labor, basically, Mm -hmm. Um, or compensating some people disproportionately to others. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. And, yeah, that's all in in that book. That's very interesting. And it actually has its roots from a long time ago where factories and the Industrial Revolution were hiring people who were either budding psychologists or philosophers in the days when psychology and philosophy were sort of not distinct fields yet, um, who would go in and try to, like, objectively evaluate worker performance um, with mathematical means and then calculate how to squeeze the most work out of them. So there's a Bob Dylan quote. Uh, I forget exactly how it goes, but it's, it's something like, happy, why would I want to be that? Why, that's, everyone wants to be happy, that's boring. Or, you know, I'd, you know what, what do you think of that? Um, I guess I would wonder what the context was for that. Um, I think maybe there's some truth to that, that like a lot of people all over the world didn't expect or have happy personal happiness as the goal really I mean that's kind of interesting to think about that like somebody grew up without the intention of like I'm just gonna do I'm gonna follow my dreams so I can be happy you know they were thinking about something else entirely mm-hmm. um, I guess I feel like an un- un- unending perpetual state of happiness is impossible um, yeah. because happiness is just one kind of emotion, and I have this belief that um, everything has its opposite, no matter what. Um, so happiness, you know, coordinates directly to. Do we have a space or something? No, nope, uh, coordinates to its opposite, you know, sadness or depression or whatever you want. So if you're going for happiness, you're also creating the possibility for sadness. Wow. Um, so sadness is inescapable, um, just as happiness might be inescapable too. Um, and I don't think sadness is not is undesirable. 
being sad and angry and all those negative emotions are necessary and important um, to feel, to go through. To be human, it's the human experience, right? Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I guess I would wonder what Bob Dylan wants to be if not happy. Mm-hmm. Um, makes me wonder what I really want for myself. Yep. Um, and uh, if I should rephrase that question, really, it's mm-hmm. like, it, is it about what should it be about what I want for myself, or should it be about what I want for the world? Oh wow, that's that's a very interesting question. You know, do Maybe you, I should do scale you... it down. Like, <laughs> the world's a big place. Yeah. <laughs> or, or what I want for a larger. Well, or maybe I should amplify it. What do I want? What do I want for the known universe? For the known or what do we want for the known universe? Maybe that's a good question to be asking. What do we want? Yeah. What do we want? Or what do they want? Because not everyone wants what we want. Yeah. Well, we were talking with, uh, when I was interviewing Jessica. I talked about how she's so amazing at supporting other people mm-hmm. in her life. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, other artists or, you know, in, in their art or, or anything. And how, and she answered, you know, as far as, you know, the logic is that, like, when, when there's an incredible work of art, mm-hmm that someone creates mm-hmm. that's it's like I want to support that because that helps me because mm-hmm. we're a community and we're, mm-hmm. we're she's she's thinking of it as a, a collective rather than me supporting that other person it's like oh yeah we're doing this together and she's like part of it mm-hmm. um, which kind of reminds me of what you're talking about like thinking about not just yourself but thinking about like Hello again. That guy. Oh, that's easy. He's just coasting down. This is the fun part. Yeah. But yeah, and so yeah. How do you see like that in terms of our our community of LA musicians and? Do you see us? Do you see it as like a individuals doing things, or do you see it like this organism? Um, I think everyone that we know is very individual. Um, I feel like everyone kind of has an original approach to music, mm-hmm. um, but. What I perceive is that um, most people are most successful uh, in collaboration with others. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like, there are ways to make it as an individual musician, just being like freelance and stuff. But I feel like um, it's the more exciting stuff that I've seen is usually bands um, or ensembles 
um, that are out there trying to do something interesting. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, there's also like cool solo work. I mean, I spend a lot of energy doing solo-based stuff, so <laughs> I don't want to take away from that. But, um, but after concentrating on that, I got bored of doing everything by myself, and I really want to be involved in a collaborative project again, so that's why I started started this new band. That's cool. Um, you know, I don't know, everyone wants to know, like, who the author is, and who conceived of it, and I feel like a lot of the narrative is always looking for, like, a great individual, but nobody really acts alone, you know, or some, I guess sometimes people do, but... You know, everyone's just, like, I think people are looking for a narrative that's, like, kind of like Beethoven or something. Yeah. It's just, like, a great genius turning out all sorts of great stuff by yourself, but I don't know. I don't think most people work that way. I don't think that's how music usually works. People do it together. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and um, scene and scenes are important, like larger communities. You know, it's never just an individual band. It's always like, like whenever you hear about the history of a certain group or whatever, it's always tied to a place and a time where there were all lots of other people who were trying to do similar things with their music. Mm -hmm. You know, or had similar goals, aesthetic values came from like the similar backgrounds and stuff like that. And they may not sound the same, they might not have the same kind of careers, but they come from little communities of people where I think there's a lot of stuff being reciprocated or stolen. <laughs> mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, like CalArts, everyone like almost everyone who comes to CalArts and goes out of the jazz program is really, I mean, I don't think it's coincidence, is really into, like, odd meters and polyrhythms and stuff like that, and it shows up in everyone's music. Yeah. You know, like, everyone, not, I don't want to say everyone, but people generally have an appreciation for that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, the college jazz world. Okay, so going to the question of uh, how have you dealt with fear in your art making, or or have you dealt with fear in your art making? Mm. I mean, I guess there's a some elements of fear is always there, maybe even a good thing because if you're, you know, you don't want it to be bad or useless or something like that. 
So in that sense, it's useful because maybe the fear gives you the courage to try a new approach throughout the old one. Okay. Um, but then at the same time, you know, fear, fear can be pretty inhibiting. Because you know, if you're so afraid of doing something that sucks, you don't try anything or you play it safe all the time. You know, that makes stuff usually not as good. Makes it harder to create. Um, I guess I feel like I've already done a lot of stuff that um, isn't commercial in any way. Mm -hmm. So... I guess I'm not afraid that a lot of people might not like it or won't get it or not I'm not I guess I'm not afraid of not making money from music even though that's kind of a perhaps a privileged thing to be mm -hmm. you know um, that being said I do have a day job you know um, I think when I was younger, I was way more concerned, I mean, I still feel this way to some degree, but I was way more concerned with being seen as, like, a badass and, like, being really good, Right. you know, and I think that motivated a lot of my practicing mm -hmm. and choices, um, and it helped me to read Effortless Mastery mm. to kind of get over that. Because he's talking about how your desire to be good actually just makes you really kind of uptight and inhibited and good ideas don't really come. Okay. Really? So, that's yeah. what... so once you read that, you said, okay, so I don't have to... Well, it was just, you know, it's like a long process. It's still like something that I think about all the time is like how I'm going to be perceived and I still have some desire to be perceived as being good in my instrument, especially, you know, depending on what the gig is. I want people to think I'm good as I do. So that still informs it, but it, I, I guess I feel like over the years it's more under control, you know, not consumed by the desire to be seen as good. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, if I'm going to deliberately try to address my tacit sense of aesthetics or my political position, I, I feel like, um, you know, some of my musical choices in the future and now are, are going to become a little bit more contrived. And I think part of that is also probably, in some sense, motivated by fear. You know, like, because I have, a, you know, a fear of a world where things things go very differently than how I would like them to politically. Um, and then I also, you know, I want it to be good. I want it to have some sort of meaning for people. Um, maybe that's really vague. You know, I don't know. Maybe I should take that approach. Maybe, maybe it's better, I'm better off just uh, shooting from the hip, you know, yeah, first yeah. idea, best idea, or whatever. Okay, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Um, so, but, I guess a lot of people always say, you know, 
that you should be motivated by fear, but you should be motivated by love. But mm -hmm. they also say, like, the opposite of fear uh, or of love is fear. So, as I was saying before, one isn't really, like, extricable from the other. Oh. Yeah. So. Um, I, I guess I can, like, say the cliche thing and, like, I'm doing it for love. And that's equally true because I'm doing it out of... I, part of it is motivated by fear, too. You know? Like, yeah. if you love something, you fear for its survival. Which means that you fear something. Oh, wow. That's, that's very interesting. So in that way, it's inextricable. So you, so you both love and fear. The, both love and fear are... are equal part drivers for your for your music yeah because I love playing music and I love collaborating with other people and I love performing and I would love it if um, it meant something to somebody and uh, that affected some sort of meaningful change that would be great but you fear that it doesn't that it won't or it w you know yeah exactly wow very interesting Cool. So, uh, last question. What, given, you know, unlimited resources, uh, what would your kind of wildest dreams be? My wildest dreams? Yeah. Un with unlimited resources? Yep. Oh. As a musician? Uh... I mean, if I had unlimited resources, like money was no object, yeah. um, I would, I wouldn't, I wouldn't bother with music. I would just give it to the people who needed it. <laughs> oh wow! You know, if I had unlimited resources, you would. Oh, you'd you'd go straight to like redistribution of wealth. Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of like giving myself a compliment, like, you know. I feel like I'm trying to say like I'm the greatest guy ever or something when I say that, but uh -huh. that's the, I mean that, if I unlimited resources then, yeah, I mean, because that's what I want is like, I want a redistribution of wealth and power. Yeah. I want people to be empowered and I want people to be autonomous and I want people to have their material concerns taken care of, no questions asked. Amazing. So that would be your, you know. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't spend it on music. You wouldn't spend it on music. Would you still be a musician? Yeah. yeah okay, you would be a musician, but... Okay. I mean, maybe I would pay off my student debt first. <laughs> okay, okay. Pay off student debt. Um, <laughs> uh, economic well, well, redistribution. Shit, if I have unlimited resources. Yeah, I can do whatever I want. Yeah, pay off student debt. Yeah. Economic, economic, worldwide economic equilibrium. Uh, playing bass. World tour. Jake Rosenzweig World Tour? Yeah, I guess, I mean, I would, like, go on the road in an ecologically friendly, sustainable way or whatever. You could totally yeah. buy a Prius. I could do better than a Prius. You could get the uh, electric car, what, what, Tesla. I could, yeah, I could get it. I mean, yeah. You could solar power that mm -hmm. and then just Tesla it. Yeah. Yeah. Um... I don't know, maybe like rent a rehearsal space. 
Diving Alleys. Um, yeah, yeah, like a way to get around that was that wasn't uh, fueled by gas or oil. Um, I would probably buy a couple instruments. Get like a new instrument. Yeah, I mean, all my economic goals are pretty small right now, <laughs> and, you know, uh, cool. Well, uh, best of luck with the band, can't wait to see what material you guys work with, and, uh, Thanks. this is Jake Rosenzweig. I feel like I've talked about it in public now, so I have to do what I just said. Oh, that's perfect. You know, now I'm, like, committed to that stuff. That helps. I, I like doing that, too. To, you think so? To just, yeah, kind of state it. Lately, I've been thinking, I've been wondering if, like, telling people about what you want to do, like, gives you, makes you feel good for accomplishing stuff you haven't actually accomplished yet. And, like, you should avoid it and just keep everything secret until it already exists. Uh-huh. But, whatever. Too late now. Too late now. I found it uh, too late now. So Jake now has no choice but to form a bench. And, uh... No, I mean, I already have... I mean, we're already working on it. But oh, it's right. just, like, just starting out. It's just starting out. Okay. So no name for it? There's a name. Um, I'm going to keep it under my hat for the time being. Okay. So, tune in for the next time where we find out about the development of Jake's rock, rock and roll bench. And, uh, this is Inner Vision's Inner View. Uh, I'm Alex Wand. Yeah, Inner Vision's Inner View. Oh, okay. So we just got a little, we just got a Jake's Inner Visions. Right? Sure. Um, over and out until next episode. Cool.